Father, we we pray as uh, as Josh and his team uh, return from India this morning. Uh, Father, I pray that um, that you would protect them, keep them safe, uh, speed their coming home. Father, travel has gotten much more complicated over the last couple of years uh, with COVID and all of that going on, and um, there can be additional roadblocks beyond the normal. So, Father, we pray that he would uh, have an easy trip home and be back with us yet this evening. And, uh, Father, we also pray for the work that he and Jordan have done. Uh, we pray that, um, that as they have trained pastors in how to handle the Word of God, Father, that your Word would blaze forth across India, where many people live and die without ever hearing the name of Jesus. Uh, Father, we pray that you would turn your word loose in that place. And Father, we pray for uh, for the, your word to have the same effect here, that like a lion it would come out of its cage and be ready to, uh, to work its transforming power in our lives. Father, may, may we submit ourselves to what your word says, May we not only be ruled by it, Father, but transformed by it as your Holy Spirit works here this morning. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this morning we're going to be in Romans chapter 5. Uh, and as you make your way there, I want to draw your attention to a frequently repeated biblical idea, which is that joy and suffering are intertwined for us as Christians. Uh, for example, in James chapter 1, verse 2, we read, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you, place, when you face trials of many kinds. In the same way, after the apostles were arrested, interrogated, and beaten by the Sanhedrin, we read in Acts chapter 5, uh, verse 41, Then they left, the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Later on in Acts 16, we see Paul and Silas. This is this great scene. They have been beaten half to death and then thrown into a dungeon and, and locked in the stocks and left there to bleed. And they are there at midnight singing hymns of praise to God. We read in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter uh, saying these words in chapter 4, verse 12 and 13. Friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But, here's that word again. Rejoice, inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now these are just a few examples. But as you read your Bible, particularly your New Testament, it is th this theme is woven through the fabric. If you look for it, you'll see it everywhere. That there is joy in suffering. And that is because spiritual maturity is not only demonstrated in the face uh, of suffering, to a great extent, 
spiritual maturity is also produced by suffering. And so for those of us who know the Lord, suffering is not something fearful for us. Something that we, it is instead something that we anticipate as part of God's sanctifying process in us on the road home. It is something that we can rejoice in. Rejoicing in suffering. Anybody think this, this is something that comes naturally? Right? No. Not for me. Maybe for you, okay? Um, complaining in suffering, I have got that handled. I, 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 I nailed it, right? Uh, complaining and suffering. That's my natural way of going when I am having a bad time. And it doesn't even have to be particularly challenging bad time, right? Like how many of y'all, when you miss the stoplight, like it goes yellow right before you get there and then you, you're like, oh, I'm late, Right? And then the person in front of you refuses to figure out which pedal is the one that goes the, moves the car forward, right? And you're sitting there and you're, what are you thinking? Come on, dude! What color are you waiting for, right? It's green! So I need to grow in my ability to rejoice in suffering. If I can't handle that, Real suffering is a lot tougher than that. Amen? So I want to learn with you how to rejoice in suffering. So if you have your Bible, uh, flip over to, um, to Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at the first five verses of Romans 5. And so if you're able, if you'd stand with me as I read what God's Word says to us. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Let's pray again. Father, we pray that this word from you would sink deep its roots into our hearts and lives. And that it might produce fruit in keeping with its intent. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, you may not realize it, um, but, it, but verses 1 and 2 make a very important point. Uh, every part of your Christian life and mine, every single part of your Christian life and mine, rests on and is rooted in a gospel foundation. You know, we are a Chillicothe Bible Church, right? But one of the things that we do every week, or I try to do every week, is to share the gospel in the service at some point, the good news that Jesus Christ died in your place for your sins uh, on the cross and was raised to give you new life. And every person who puts their faith in Jesus Christ receives in that moment forgiveness of their sins and eternal 
life. That is the gospel message. And it is the beginning and the foundation of your Christian life. But believe it or not, you don't leave the gospel behind when you mature in Christ. You don't move on from Jesus. Uh, you continue to live your life uh, in a way that is rooted in and built on your relationship with God that you enter into through faith in the gospel. And so as you are growing in spiritual maturity, you're always building on that foundation. And that's what Paul is doing in verses 1 and 2. He, he begins, uh, I, I love the, the, these, this word in your Bible, the word therefore. And I've said this enough that some of you all know what I'm about to say. When you see the word therefore, you need to check and see what it's very good. All right. And, uh, and what it's there for is to point you back to the previous context, what he's talking about. And, and what he's talking about in chapter 4 is how God has always had the same identical process for entering into relationship with him. Whether you're talking the Old Testament or the New Testament, the means of entering into a relationship with God comes down to one word, which is faith. Now the content of that faith varied. In the Old Testament they anticipated and looked forward to the coming of a Messiah whose name they did not yet know. And now in the New Testament era we look back on Jesus and as the Messiah who has come in fulfillment of those Old Testament promises. But the basis of entering into a relationship with God was always the same. You're going to believe God's promises. And you're going to believe in the Messiah specifically that he promised. And so just as God saved Abraham by grace through faith alone, God saves us in the same way, by faith alone. And so when we put our faith, our trust, in what God says about Jesus, that he is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins in our place and who was raised from the dead to give us new life, then we have eternal life. We are, to use the biblical word here in verse 1, uh, justified. Okay, To be justified before God is to be declared righteous. That in a sense, you put on the righteousness of Jesus when you put your faith in him. There's an old hymn, uh, we actually quoted it in Sunday school this morning, or at least the Sunday school class I was in, uh, called The Solid Rock. And it goes like this. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, right? It says, it talks about how he says um, uh, that we are dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. We stand before God's throne dressed in the righteousness of Christ. That when we put our trust in Christ, we are declared righteous. We are declared to have the righteousness of Christ. He dresses us in his righteousness, if you will. And we stand before God faultless, declared righteous. Not just innocent, righteous. 
and we receive membership in God's own family. That is a huge part of what the Bible means by salvation. That we are declared righteous before God. That our sins are canceled out and we are given the righteousness of God. The right standing before God that Jesus has. Because here's the thing. Every act of sin, believe it or not, every single one, and pick whichever one you want, big, hairy, ugly ones, and little bitty white lies, and all the rest of the things in between. Every single sin, according to the Bible, is an act of treasonous rebellion against the God who made you. Every single one. But when you put your faith in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, what you do is sign your name to the peace treaty between you and God, and that peace treaty will never be broken. And you have and will always keep the state of peace between you and God forever afterward because faith in Jesus Christ has moved you from being traitors against God to being one of God's children. You get a new status. You're justified. And that's what it means when it says that you have peace with God, there in verse 1. That God is no longer against you, and you are no longer against him. You have moved from being a, a rebel to being a son. Your old life is canceled out, and you are given new life through faith in Jesus. And verse 2 makes it clear that our justification, that part where we get declared to have God's righteousness, is just the beginning of our salvation. If you look at the first part of the verse, it's, it says, obtaining access into this grace in which we stand. So in other words, our faith not only gains us salvation from the consequences of sin, it's also entry into the means of God's grace which sustains our daily life in him afterwards. The theological word for that is the word sanctification. It's the process of being holy, of living out the righteousness that you have received. Uh, the lifelong process, if you will, of becoming more like Jesus who saved you. And that too is obtained by the same way. By faith in Jesus as God works by his grace to transform you. And there's more. The rest of verse 2, second half of the verse, talks about that by grace, through faith, we also rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's the third part of our salvation, the third aspect of it. We, we are saved from sin and death when we're justified. We are progressively transformed from being sinners into saints as we're sanctified in our daily life between now and our death, and then after we die, what do we enter into? We enter into glory. And that's this part of verse 2, right? That this is where the part where we spend eternity in glory with Jesus, that God's grace operating through our faith in Jesus carries us all the way home. Don't misunderstand the word hope here. It isn't speaking about something 
uncertain. Something that we hope will happen, but maybe it won't. Biblical hope is not like that. Biblical hope is having the certainty of something that will occur, but which has not yet occurred, and that gives you hope for everyday life in between now and then. The idea of biblical hope is knowing for sure how the story ends and that it ends in glory with us and Jesus forever and ever and that that transforms our circumstances and gives us hope now. And when we know what is coming, we know what's coming, we can, there's that word again, Rejoice. We can rejoice in the hope of the eternal glory that is ours. Let me give you just a real quick illustration. My dear wife, Karen, and my boys are down in Nashville today. They have been having a fun weekend, enjoying spring break before uh, the boys get their wisdom teeth out this week. <laughs> right? <laughs> All right. So, we got to have... A little spoonful of sugar to make the medicine go down, right? As Mary Poppins used to say. Um, and so they are down in Nashville, and I know they will be home tonight, right? So I am doing what? Rejoicing in hope, <laughs> right? It's been a long weekend as a bachelor. I don't sleep that well. Uh, you know, I just try to stay busy and occupied until I fall asleep from exhaustion around 1 o'clock. You know, and, um, and you know, I, I'm a terrible single person. Okay, I've been married too long, and, and I, I can't sleep anymore. I don't know how to function. It's terrible, right? But glory is coming, right? She... The boys too, but Karen will be home, <laughs> right? They're temporary residents in my house, but 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 my wife will be home, right? My wife will be home, and so I am rejoicing in hope, looking forward to that day. And if we're going to suffer well, this is the point of these first two verses. If we're going to suffer well, we first need to rejoice in our salvation that we have in Jesus. In knowing not only that we're saved from sin and its consequences in hell, which is a big reason to rejoice, amen? And not only that Jesus is with us in our everyday circumstances and transforms our life day by day, we rejoice in that. But we're also rejoicing looking forward to the glory that is to come. And when you know that glory is coming, there's an amount of suffering you can handle. Amen? Because you know that this is not the end of the story. The end of the story is actually at the end after the end of our story, right? And the real story just begins at the end of the journey, right? Probably my favorite book in the Chronicles of Narnia, and I go back and forth um, between which one is my favorite, depending on which one I'm reading. But my favorite usually is The Last Battle. And it's, it's Lewis's uh, attempt to 
think about how the Bible presents the last things in a creative way, uh, in a world in which animals talk and uh, so forth, right? And when everything is over and they step through the door into glory, into the new Narnia, of which everything before has been just a shadow and a copy, it is amazing. Right? And they say that the true story just begins and every chapter is better than the last. And that's what we're looking forward to. Amen? And until we're really rejoicing in our salvation, we're going to struggle rejoicing in our suffering, right? So this is why this is really important to get the foundation right. The foundation of the gospel, that Jesus loves you and sacrificed himself for you and walks with you day by day in every moment and is taking you home to glory with him. Until you get that solid, you can't rejoice in suffering, right? So that's why Paul goes there. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And as you do that, knowing what ultimately comes next, then we rejoice in our refining suffering. Look at the verses 3 and 4 here again. Most of us don't have trouble rejoicing in our salvation, really, or looking forward to the great day when Jesus calls us home to be with him. But, but, but this verse flips the script on us. We also rejoice in our suffering. How do we do that? According to verse 3, we rejoice by being excited about what suffering is doing for us and in us. There's a linked chain of results that we should expect from suffering. The first one is that suffering produces endurance. Now think about it this way. I haven't been able to run for a few weeks. I've had whatever creeping crud is going around and I've been, you know, hacking up a lung part of the day and uh, living on Mucinex and Dayquil, right? Um, which if I said anything goofy from the pulpit, just chalk it up to that, all right? <laughs> but, um, but in any case, okay, um, I have not been able to run. And so tomorrow, I'm hoping, will be my first day back to running. Now, normally, I have been able to run three or four miles and not had much of a problem. But I haven't been able to breathe for about three weeks, right? So I don't know what tomorrow's going to be like. I suspect, I suspect that my endurance is going to be lower, right? That I won't be able to go as hard or as fast or as long as I have been customarily able to do, Right? Why do you run? Because you want the effects on your heart and your lungs and your health overall, right? But in order to get to the point where you can, you go through what? 
suffering. <laughs> right? You go through suffering. Nobody starts running and thinks, boy, this is a good time. God has made me fast. I love this, right? No, you suffer at the beginning, right? Until your endurance is built up. And that's Paul's point here. That suffering produces in us endurance. The process of getting there is hard. There's suffering involved. But as you endure it, what happens? You gain capabilities that you didn't possess before. And that becomes exciting. It's a cause for celebration. And that's the idea Paul has in mind here. Our suffering are, is part of God's training process. Not because he hates us. How many of you all who did athletics were convinced that the coach hated you? <laughs> right? I mean, I remember being in wrestling and, be, and it being like, we're going to do another 30 push-ups. And I was going, oh my Gosh, the coach hates us, right? No, you don't do those because the coach hates you, but because it's part of a strengthening endurance process so that when you're out there on the mat, you don't embarrass yourself, right? Um, you want to be strong. You want to have endurance. You want to have capabilities that you don't currently possess. And suffering is the means by which you gain those capabilities that God wants you to have in a spiritual sense. And so you can rejoice in what God is giving you when suffering comes into your life. And then as you add endurance, you gain what the next word is, character. Now, the Bible scholar Leon Morris uh, says it this way, that this is a hard word to translate into English, but it has to do with being refined or battle-tested. That's what this word means. Um, now, let me ask you this. If you're going to war, you know, Russia's on the doorstep, let's say, right? Uh, and you're going to war, do you want to go to war alongside a guy who has already been shot at a bunch of times and has stood the test, or with a guy who is like two weeks out of boot camp. Well, I know who I'd rather share a foxhole with, right? I'd rather be in the foxhole next to the guy who's already been shot at. Because we know he's not going to turn tail and run and leave me all to my lonesome out there. Right? And that's the idea. Is that we become, as we develop endurance, we develop character. We become Christians who can stand the test. Who have, by God's grace, operating in our lives through faith in Jesus, proven ourselves to be good soldiers of Christ Jesus who can stand against the devil's scheme and against his temptations and against the pressures of the world and against the pressure, frankly, of our own sin. The kind of men and women who by the Holy Spirit's empowerment regularly win in spiritual warfare. Character. We can stand. 
And as you develop character, you add, and here's this word again, hope to it. Let me explain that. Our hope in Christ is uh, not a word to describe a wish or a, prefer, a, you know, a preferred set of circumstances that were like, oh, I, I hope this happens, but maybe it won't. Our hope is tied to our faith. We know that our salvation is coming. Amen? And we know that Jesus is there at the end of the race, that he is going to be just the other side of the tape, and as soon as we break it, we fall into his embrace. And we celebrate victory, and we have something that strengthens our hope, and that, ironically, is suffering. How does that work? Because when we suffer, what we find out is that God is faithful to us in our suffering. And as we experience God's faithfulness to us in our suffering, in ways that we didn't experientially know that he would be beforehand, our confidence in him and our hope goes up. Because we realize that God is God who keeps his promises and and so our faith goes stronger, our hope grows more certain. And I can tell you, I know that on a personal level. One of the worst and best things that can ever happen to you is this. That you could have one of your worst fears come true. And find that God is there with you in it. Find that God is there with you in it. Because it, when that happens, and if you live long enough, it's going to. One of my worst fears is that something terrible would happen to Karen. If I live long enough, something will. One of her worst fears is that something will happen to me. And if the statistics are any guide, that's probably a more reliable possibility because men don't live as long as their wives, right? Uh, we leave behind rich widows, but um, we don't we don't live as long, right? Or at least that's our goal. But you know what? If that happens, if that happens. You know who will still be there? The Lord. And when we go through those terrible, hard circumstances and we find that God is faithful even there, it increases the certainty of our hope. It says here that our hope does not put us to shame. That's verse 5. This verse is all about knowing that God loves us through the process. Our hope does not put us to shame. You understand that phrase there? It, this, this phrase is meant to answer the question for us about whether or not our suffering is worth it. Is it worth it? 
to trust Christ? Let me put it to you this way. Um, have you ever gone all in on something that did not turn out as expected? Have you ever, maybe you've, you've sat down with a girl or a guy, I still remember this. Uh, the last girl that I was dating before I met Karen, uh, this was about 1994. Okay, so it's been a few years back. Um, but there was this girl I was totally enamored with. And I thought she was the one for me. We'd been on a number of dates and over the course of about six months. And at the end of that period, I said to her, I love you. I think you're the greatest thing, right? And she said, um, so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I went, oh boy, <laughs> right? And then y'all had that experience or it was just me, right? You, went, you pushed all your chips to the middle of the table and that conversation did not go how you thought it was going to wind up, right? Have you ever, you ever maybe you've, uh, you've taken a job at a new company and you thought, man, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. And then you get there and you find out it's a job, Right? And you're like, ah, right? And so you have so much hype and so many vain hopes that are just waiting to be crushed. And it's become something that you'll be ashamed to admit and be embarrassed by later on. And the guy who wrote this book of Scripture, Paul, had been publicly stripped naked and beaten eight times over the course of his life. He was imprisoned for years on end. He was shipwrecked three times. He lived most of his adult life outdoors, sleeping under the stars in a tent. He ends his life with his head literally on a chopping block, like a turkey at Thanksgiving. He lost his social standing, his reputation. He was disowned by the people of his own nation. Was all that humiliation worth it? Will following Jesus to the end through sufferings in this life ultimately end in embarrassment and disappointment? What does the text say? No, it won't. Our hope will not be put to shame. How do we know? How do we know when we can't see the end of the story yet? How do we know that trusting in Jesus and rejoicing in our suffering because it brings us closer to Jesus and makes us more like Him will be worth it? Is there any evidence that we can point to that reassures us that we will not be ashamed? What is it? If there's any evidence, what is it? And the rest of the verse, verse 5 tells us that God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit 
who has been given to us. How do I know that suffering doesn't disprove faith in Jesus? Because God has already given me proof of his love in giving me the Holy Spirit who proves and certifies by his living, abiding presence every single day that all of his promises are going to be kept. Every single one. Years ago, there was a Christian musician I, that I still really enjoy. Uh, his name is Charlie Peacock. And uh, Charlie Peacock, I think, is a music producer now, mostly. But but back when the Earth's crust was cooling and I was a teenager, um, Charlie was a touring musician. And um, and he had a song out called Dear Friend that was based on 2 Peter 3. And the song started out like this. It said, Dear Friend, there's a story going around that says you're going to be married soon. But you've been saying that for years. And there can be no wedding without a groom. He's been gone a long, long time. Do you have any doubts to confess? Do you wonder if you will ever wear that wedding dress? Dear friend, he is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness to be. So keep a watch out and don't lose faith. He said he would come for you. He's going to come for you. You wait and see. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And he is coming because he loves us. How do we know? How do we rejoice not only in salvation but also in suffering by remembering that he has already given us the Holy Spirit who in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says is the seal and the promise and the foretaste of God's presence with us and it is the proof that he loves you with an everlasting love day by day by day, through every hard circumstance, through every challenge and trial, and even through your worst sin, He loves you. How do we know? Because He gives us the Holy Spirit and He never takes Him away. The Spirit is God's permanent testimony to you that you are His and you So, are you suffering today? How do you respond with joy? Three things to remember. Number one, rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice in your salvation. Look back on what God did in forgiving your sin. Remember what your life was like before and how you've been set free from sin and death and hell for all eternity. If that doesn't cause you to rejoice as a Christian, you I don't know what's wrong with you, right? You've been set free from all of that. Meditate on God's grace to you in the present, how despite all that may be going on in your life right now, God is saving you. He is working to transform you into a person who is like Jesus.
anticipate and look forward to the glory that you will enjoy for all eternity with the Lord and remember that your hope is secure. In other words, if you want to rejoice in your suffering, rejoice in your salvation by preaching the gospel to yourself in your circumstances and reminding yourself of all that God has already done, is doing, and will do for you. Preach the gospel to your soul until your heart sings with the truth that you are loved from beginning to end. Rejoice in the results your suffering is producing. People don't run and diet and lift weights and stuff because they like it, right? I mean, maybe there are a few crazy people out there who like it, but what most of us do it for is the results, right? We like the outcome. We like the fact that we get stronger, that our pants fit better, that we can buy smaller shirts, etc., right? We, we, uh, we like the results and we rejoice in them. And in the same way, we are called to rejoice not in the fact that we are suffering, but in, the, in what suffering is producing in us. That suffering gives us endurance, character, and a firmer hope in Jesus as we see him carry us through them. Finally, rejoice in God's love for you. You are not accidentally in God's family. God did not get you on some kind of a BOGO deal, right? Like, you know, well, I got, I got this pair of shoes, and so I got these for free, right? Uh, God did not bring you into his family that way. God did not accidentally save you. He saved you specifically because he loves you specifically. And he is taking you home to be with him. And he loves you. He loved you at your very worst. He loves you still, perfectly now. And he will always love you throughout all ages, now and forevermore. And so rejoice in that. You are far more loved than you dare to hope. And whatever you're dealing with today is just part of the journey. I love that part of the scripture where it says, For I consider that our light and momentary afflictions are not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed in us. Remember this? Right? Do our afflictions feel light and momentary? No. They do not. Right? But in comparison with eternity, the entire life that we live, and I don't care if you uh, live to be older than Dick Lingenfelter, okay, um, if you live to be 120, okay, it, your life 
in this life, in this world, is like going outside this morning and going, and watch it disappear. That's your life. Eternity is, as the, the song Amazing Grace says, when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining in our glory like the sun, we will have no fewer days, no less day to sing God's praise than when we first begun. In other words, 10,000 years, eternity hasn't started yet. A million years that we're with the Lord, eternity has barely begun. A billion years that we have been there enjoying God's presence as we were created to enjoy Him, we have not even started. We haven't crossed the start line yet. Our light and momentary affliction is not worthy to be compared with the glory to be revealed in us. You are loved. And that is the future that awaits you and I. The future not of suffering, but of glory and of grace for all who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. He will never leave you to suffer alone. Be with you all the way to the end. And then beyond for all eternity. So let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can rejoice in our salvation, in our suffering, and in your love for us. Father, I pray that we who know these things would be blessed as we put them into practice, and that we might shine as lights in the midst of a darkened generation that Many people have no hope. Many people feel trapped and enslaved by their sin to such a degree that they identify themselves by it. And Father, we know that that's not your purpose. That's not your desire for us. Your desire for us is that we would have joy in every circumstance. Knowing you and knowing your love and knowing what's coming. What can anyone do to us? What can happen to us that would ever shake our joy? Father, I pray that we might be transformed in joyful people. That the world might see what Christ does with a life that belongs to him. Father, we thank you that you love us, and we rejoice in that. In Jesus' name, amen.